Well, it all happened at 3 p.m. on Monday afternoon this past May, when Mother Kimmy Simmons could not find her three-year-old little girl, Athena. She was not in a room where she had been playing prior, and she searched every room of the house in vain. Her child was nowhere. Panic began to set in. Where was her little girl? Where had she gone? They lived in a tightly packed neighborhood in Lake Stevens in Washington, just about 30 miles north of Seattle on I-5. And Kimmy began to call all of her neighbors. Athena is missing. I can't find her. Is she at your place? Have you seen her out in the street anywhere? No, I'll go look. Let me call the neighbors down the street. They'll, they were looking. Before long, hundreds were searching for the missing girl. Asking around, knocking on doors, the police were called, they got involved. Trying to organize, where are we going to go, how are we going to do this? Okay, as, as every minute it heightens a little bit more, okay, let's, let's regroup, let's, let's think again, where have we looked, where have we checked, where have we not checked? The county search and rescue team joined in. They tried to organize the volunteers in this search. How far, based on the time, could she have gotten on foot, they were asking. Could she have wandered off into the woods nearby their home? Had somebody picked her up? And if so, how far could she have traveled by now? A helicopter was even called in and became part of the search for three-year-old Athena. All the while, mother, Kimmy Simmons, saying things like it just felt like my stomach dropped out, like my heart stopped beating, like all of a sudden I forgot how to breathe. And then, after four agonizing hours, Kimmy's hope that she would ever see her little girl again began to significantly wane. All the easy solutions had been exasperated. There was no way she was playing in a neighbor's room at this point. Everyone in the whole area knew that something was going on. But then it happened. Kimmy Simmons, the mother, had a sister that was there, and she was up in the bedroom of one of Kimmy's sons. And the room was rather disheveled. It's a good reason to clean up your room, kids. And as she tried to straighten the covers just a little bit, guess who was inside, tucked under the covers of her brother's bed? Athena. Completely unaware that anything was going on. Didn't know that there was even a problem. Unaware that she was lost. And of all places she was lost, where? Inside her own home. Today we're continuing our story. We're entitling Lost. This is actually the second part. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and eventually we'll get to the lost son. But we're looking at this piece about the lost coin this morning. You may recall from two weeks ago, about the story, the parable, if you will, of the good shepherd that searches until he finds 
his lost sheep. And he doesn't reprimand, he doesn't beat up the sheep, but he graciously carries the lamb home on his shoulders, perhaps tucked in his arms, trying to calm and quiet the little sheep. We looked at three beautiful characteristics of God last week, that God always initiates the seeking. You don't clean yourself up first. You don't get it all figured out. No, God initiates the seeking. You're lost. You're scared. You don't know where you are. But God knows exactly where you are. And he comes looking until he finds you. Secondly, we saw that God is gracious. As seen in Romans 5, verse 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Talk about grace. And when Jesus finds the lost, like I mentioned before, he doesn't scold, but he picks them up in his arms. And thirdly, we saw that God loves to celebrate, a theme that we will see in these very well-known parables. Often we think of them as parables for children, but they have huge impacts on us as adults as well. As we see a God that loves to celebrate, loves to rejoice over the lost that was found. That all heaven throws a big party. Can you imagine? I can't imagine heaven throwing a party for me. But they did. And they did it for you too. Wow. And we saw that it is the heart of Christ. And if it's the heart of Jesus, it really ought to be our heart as well. If we're going to be like him, that we need to tenaciously pursue the lost, to be abundantly gracious with people. Well, they don't deserve it. Neither did any of us. And to celebrate with heaven over one sinner that repents. So that was last time. But this time we're continuing on. And we're looking at the parable now of the lost coin. He told them in succession, one right after the next. And you know these stories well. And just as a reminder, he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes that complained. And why were they complaining? Because Jesus hung out with the wrong crowd at times. He was surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. And he wasn't condoning sin, not at all. He wasn't participating in their sinful practices, but was offering them a way out. And obviously, he did it in such a winsome way. We read last time that this crowd, these sinners, if you will, were attracted to him and enjoyed listening to him. That should give us pause. When those people want to hang out with Church people, praise the Lord. It says they drew near to him to hear him. And so Jesus had just finished the story of the lost sheep. He knew, the sheep knew it was lost. He had no clue how to get back. He was sought after by the good shepherd and brought home with much celebration. And then he goes right into this second story. And so we'll pick that up. We're in Luke chapter 15. 
And we're just looking at three verses this morning. Luke chapter 15, verse 8. We read there, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Verse 9, And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So going back to verse 8, reading it now a little bit more microscopically, or what woman having ten silver coins... Some have thought that the coins were part of a 10-piece dowry that, could be, that would be worn by married women. And when a coin was lost, it meant some significant things in regards to her marriage or reputation and various things. So she had to find the coin. Now the coin doesn't know that it's lost. And we see here that the coin is lost in the home, which is opposite or, or, or different, I could say, of the sheep that knows he is lost, that knows she is lost, but does not know the way back. The coin does not have any capacity, if you will, to understand its lost condition. It's in some unconsciousness or unconscious state, unconscious of its spiritual state. And we could say their souls are certainly in peril, but they are both unconscious and unconcerned. Do you know anybody like that? You fear for their spiritual state? You're not seeking to judge them or, or their motives or anything else, but it's quite apparent by the fruit that you continue to see that this person is not desiring to be Christian, does not desire to follow the Lord. In fact, maybe they've said very blatantly, that's not for me. And they're lost. But they're unconscious or unconcerned. And the verse says they're lost in the home. It was close at hand. Yet it could be recovered only by diligent Search. Now, oftentimes, I know in my experience, I oftentimes hear in this section of these three parables the application that there is a person lost in the church. And certainly you can make that connection. Often in Scripture, the church is depicted as a woman, right? The bride of Christ. And it is very possible and very plausible. In fact, we know that just because we are here doesn't mean we're in a saving relationship. And we also know that it was church people that Jesus had the hardest time reaching, wasn't it? They were lost and they didn't know it. They thought they were fine. They were blinded, if you will. And so you can make that connection. And I believe it's valid. I believe that it's there. 
But I think there's perhaps another connection that's a bit more personal that maybe we skip over. And perhaps it's because the other application allows me to pass some blame. I mean, it's the church's fault. It's those Pharisees in the church. Something should be done. It's the pastor's fault. It's the teacher's fault. It's the elder's fault. This church. But what if we step just a bit closer and look at the application a little bit differently? The woman lost something of great value to her, and she lost it in her own home. So maybe the example is not just the church. But maybe it could refer to my home and your home. And it may seem harsh, but it doesn't merely say that the coin was lost, but that she lost it. That would imply that there was some carelessness on her part. That led to the losing of the coin? Which might pose a little bit of surprise later when she calls for this big celebration. I know when I lose things and I find them, I slip them back in my pocket and I don't tell Elizabeth because she always says, you always lose things. And it's true. I do. I can call her on the phone and say, I can't find, look over here, top shelf, a little bit to the right about, you know, whatever, in this little bin, and it's right there in the back corner. Thank you. But we're digressing here a bit. But the point is, she's careless. She loses something of value to her in her own home. Friends, what's of greatest value to you in your home? And what would you do if you lost that? And on top, what would you do if you lost it by your own carelessness? Christ's Object Lessons 194 says, This parable has a lesson to the church. Oh, I'm sorry, to families. In the household, there is often great carelessness concerning the souls of its members. Among their number, there may be one who is estranged from God, but how little anxiety is felt. That's a sad quote to me. I remember one church that I pastored, not this one, and there was a single mother in our district, and she wanted the best for her little girl. I think her little girl was in first or second grade. Uh, only child, and this little girl got anything you can think of, it seemed. And when she first came into our church, she was excited that we had a church school. And so she enrolled her daughter in the church school, and initially she really loved what was happening there. But then the mother started to get a little bit uneasy about various things. She said, well, I don't feel like the school is challenging my daughter enough 
and I want her to learn a second language. And if I take her out of the, our school and I put her into this other secular private school, not Christian, she can learn a second language, maybe a third language. She can have some advanced math techniques. She can learn, you know, there's an arts class and she can learn art and all these other things. And I listened to this person for a while and I thought for a second, and I tried to convince, you know, there's all kinds of studies about the longer you stay in the Adventist school system, the, the higher you score above the national average. I mean, they can bear that out. It's a beautiful blessing, I think, that the Lord has, has given to our educational system and how we conduct and go through education and so on. But not only did I share some of that, but I thought to myself and I shared with her, you know, your daughter can learn two, three, five, eight, twelve languages. They may be the next best artist on the planet. But if it's a secular school, and if there's no biblical teaching in that school, I mean, which would you prefer as a parent? The most talented child ever, but is lost? Or a child that can do very well and don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I think our schools are fantastic. This school this girl was in was fantastic. But she pulled her out of that school and put her in this other school, and it wasn't long at all before the church attendance started to wane, before they found something that they left entirely. And to my knowledge, this girl's not in the church today. And my heart breaks for that situation. Folks, is there ever carelessness on our part concerning the members of our own families? Because the reality is, it's easier to share Christ on a mission trip than the people in our own family. We have individuals that are associated with us in an intimate way. You grew up together. You were in the same room for time. You know, I mean, you can finish each other's sentences and you can go back to experiences and you can laugh it up and have a wonderful time, but you know they're not in a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. And what would it profit if you gain the whole world, if they gain the whole world, but they lost their soul? Often there's great carelessness concerning the members of our own family. You know, often we speak of the second coming, the blessed hope with nothing but euphoria. And it will be. But what will it be like? As we're in the cloud, as we're raising up, you know, the angels to be with the Lord forever, and we're looking around, and we're doing you know, an inventory of who's there, who's with us. Where's Elizabeth? Where's Lauren and Matthew and Marianne and James? Are we all here? Then the circle grows a little bit bigger. Where are my siblings and where are my parents and, and where are my cousins and aunts and uncles? Who's here? But in that moment of excitement and euphoria, there's going to be that conflict that individual, we know by name, 
We know very well. And they're not here. Talk about a strange conflict of emotions. We shared the same space for years, perhaps. But they're not going to heaven. But friends, the good news is, there's still hope. We're not there just yet. We're not in that position just yet. We can still ask Jesus to shine through us to touch those, not just out there, but in our home. And so going back to the parable, the woman is careless in some way, it says, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want to lay any guilt trips on any parents. I don't want to be hard on parents. I believe parenting is one of the most challenging things there is that any of us are called to. It's filled with second-guessing, wondering, did I do this right? Did I say that right? Was my timing off? I shouldn't have done this. I should have waited. And sometimes, regardless of what you do, you're second-guessing. Was that the right thing? Was that the right time? I think of the well-known HMS Richards in an interview after his retirement was asked if he would do anything differently. And do you know what he said? He said, I would have spent more time with my family. That's what he said. He spent so much time on the road working for the church. And there was a time when his teenage son was not buying in to what he was selling. And he was thinking the world out there was a better place to be. And so again, as he had been accustomed to doing, he found his way tiptoeing out of the house. And as his hand got to the doorknob to sneak out, he heard the voice of his father praying for his son by name, saying, Lord, give me my son back. Please, give me my son back. And as he heard his father pleading and in dialogue with God for his son, his son couldn't go out the door. He snuck back to his bedroom. And over a series of events, the Lord got his attention. He came back into the church and later worked with the voice of prophecy. No parenting is tough. And nobody is immune to the challenges of parenting. So I'm not here to come down on parents. All of us have regrets. All of us would do things differently. All of us have things we're remorseful about. All of us have to make apologies often. I know I pray often, Lord, help me to be a better father. Help me to do things differently. Help me not to lose my cool. And the reality exists that even if one individual could do everything perfect, 
a child could still choose to rebel. Isn't that true? They still have that freedom of choice. And we can look at exhibit A in the perfect world. Lucifer with perfect parents in the perfect environment, the perfect educational system. Yet iniquity was found in his heart and he said, this is not for me. And after conversation, after conversation, after conversation, he was not going to change his mind. So that exists too. And so parents, you can't blame yourselves for things that cannot be changed. And even if you did a perfect job, they still made made the same decision. That reality exists. So again, this is not to lay a guilt trip on parents. You don't need more guilt. But there's an opportunity, I believe, for us here as parents. It says there are fathers and mothers who long to labor in some foreign mission field. There are many who are active in Christian work outside the home while their own children are strangers to the Savior. Now that's a shame. They're active. They're involved. They're names that you might recognize. They're powerful speakers and and wonderful evangelists and and great, great pastors or administrators, whatever it may be. But their own children are strangers to the Savior and His love. The work of winning their children for Christ, many parents trust to the minister. That's his job. Or the Sabbath school teacher. That's her job. But in doing this, they are neglecting their own God-given responsibility. Whose responsibility is it? It's mine. Elizabeth and I have a phrase that we say back and forth to each other. You made them, you raise them. Continuing on, the education and training of their children to be Christians is the highest service that parents can render to God. Did you catch that? I mean, I'm out there, I'm, I'm baptizing, I'm preaching, I'm doing Bible studies, and, and everybody is just talking about, wow, incredible, this is amazing. Nope, the highest service that parents can render is uh, Let me back up. The education and training of the children to be Christians is the highest service that parents can render to God. It is a work that demands patient labor and a lifelong, diligent, and persevering effort. I hear other parents say, you know, well, they're 18. They can make up their own mind now. And that's true. There are certain things at a certain age, your role as a parent gets more and more limited. And ultimately, what you want is not for you to control your children all the way through life, but you want them to learn how to fly and to leave the nest. It's a challenging thing. But sometimes as parents, we have to push them out of the nest. You're 35 years old. Try on some wings. But then sometimes as parents, we think, well, they're adults. I'm done. No, you're not. You're never done. You're a parent for life. 
That child needs you for life, just like you need your parents for life. And when that parent is no longer there, I don't care what age you are, there is a void. Somehow you feel alone in this world because your parents aren't there any longer. No, this is a lifetime, a persevering effort on behalf of the parents. And by neglect of this trust, we prove ourselves unfaithful stewards. No excuse for such neglect will be accepted by God. Wow. No excuse. Does that include Bible studies? Does that include visiting shut-ins? You get the idea. So we're breaking this down. What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search until she finds it? At that time, floors were often dirt floors. Anybody here have a dirt floor at home? And there weren't many windows, so even in the middle of the day, the house would be dark. And so what is the first thing that this woman does? She lights a lamp. Does the Bible verse come to mind? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. First thing, I'm going to pull out God's word. I'm going to say, Lord, I have something that's lost. It's very precious to me. And without you, There's no way I can find it. I can push around in this little hovel of a home. I can mix the dirt up. I can push everything to this side and to that side. But in the dark, there's a very good chance that I will just bury the coin further. So Lord, I'm desperate here. I need you to light my path, to show me where to look, that I might even see this little glimmer And know where to start. And so she lights the lamp. And as parents, we need to light the lamp. I would submit to you, wake up early enough to light the lamp. To get into God's word and to find out where the Holy Spirit is leading and follow the Spirit. Because I'm not going to stand up here and give you some kind of, well, if you do this, A, B, C, D, and E... Baptism, done, ta-da! It doesn't work that way. Every case is absolutely different. And so you need God's word to guide you, to direct you, to give you wisdom, not just when to speak, but when to be quiet. When to show by example, and when to say some challenging things. When is that time? Lord, give me your word. Show me. By the power of your Holy Spirit. First things first. She doesn't panic. Even though she's probably overwhelmed. She pulls out the lamp. And parents, we need to do the same. Another quote here from Christ's Object Lessons. If there is in the family one child who is unconscious of his sinful state, parents should not rest Let the candle be lighted. Search the word of God. And by its light, let everything in the home be diligently examined to see why this child is lost. 
Let parents search their own hearts, examine their habits and practices. Children are the heritage of the Lord, and we are answerable to Him for our management of His property. Again, that's pretty strong language. She doesn't pass the buck. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not the pastor. It's not the teacher. It's not the church. At the end of the day, it's me. And kids are like a sponge. They absorb everything and anything. And it should drive us to our knees daily, if not hourly, to say, Lord, help me. I'm not fit to be a parent. I'm not fit to be an example. I'm not fit to know how to handle these situations. Lord, help me. Search my own heart. Show me my own bad habits, my own practices. See if there's any wickedness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because without that, I'm lost as a parent. I'm shuffling around in the dark. Isaiah 8, verse 18. Isn't this what every parent longs to be able to say on resurrection morning? Here am I, and the children whom the Lord has given to the pastor. To me. Highest calling, highest duty. So going back to our three verses, a woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. There's that key word again, until. That word until encompasses an eternity of determination. In other words, at any cost, I will find you. You got 15 minutes, and then I'm calling it quits. 15 days, and I've done my best effort. 15 years, if you live long enough, 15 decades, you keep searching after that lost, precious, valuable thing, your son, your daughter, your cousin, your aunt, your uncle, your parent, whoever it is, you keep searching until, until. And that's the amazing aspect of this story. In this parable, Christ teaches that even those who are indifferent to the claims of God, they are still the object of his pitying love. And the divine parent will not give up until he finds his lost kids. And friends, heaven is still engaged and using every resource in seeking and reclaiming that which was lost. Will you be part of the search? And of course, the million-dollar question in our search for family members and those indifferent to God is, well, how? They're so sarcastic and they always have an answer and, and I, I hate to just stir the pot and, and if I'm not careful, they'll just defriend me or not want to be near me. Or, and all of those things are, are very true. And so it's easy for us to say, well, you can't witness to family. You just have to throw up your hands and say, oh, well. But you can always pray. You can always seek God to show you 
ways in which you can connect with that individual. In a winsome way. Not to give them an earful. Not to straighten them out. But to show them love and compassion. That you have a desire and care for their soul. That's what Jesus does with the lost sheep, isn't it? He doesn't beat the sheep into submission and drive them all the way home. No, rather, in tenderness and pity, the Savior seeks with love and compassion. James didn't have much of a father. I'm not sure he ever met his dad. He ran off when he was a baby. He was raised by his uncle until he was seven years old. But then at age seven, his uncle said, okay, I'm going to take you back to your mother. The mother lived in New York City. And that was a very unstable situation for little James. And so he lived in 13 houses in 12 years as a young man. Finally ran off and joined the Navy. And it was in the Navy that he started to look and desire more after spiritual things and and looking for spiritual truth. He considered himself a Protestant. But it was about this time that he met a little Catholic girl. Her name was Gloria. And he fell in love with Gloria. And so he made a deal, Protestant and Catholic coming together. He made a deal to the priest. I'll raise our kids Catholic. So that's what they did. As he continued to search, he came into a fuller message of the Seventh-day Adventist, the three angels message. He accepted that, was baptized. And so he would go to church on Sabbath. And then he would drive his family to the Catholic Church on Sunday, and he'd stay out in the car and study his Sabbath school lesson. And then they'd come home for a big Sunday lunch. And it was described as a beautiful pork roast with potatoes and salad, vegetables, rolls. And they'd have the prayer on Sunday afternoon, and the whole family would dive in to the food. Father James would take some mashed potatoes and some salad, some vegetables, a roll. He'd put his hand on on Gloria's arm. He'd say, dear, thank you so much for making this incredible spread for us. Had a little boy named Mark. As Mark grew up, Mark liked and enjoyed fishing. And where they were, fishing season would start on Saturday morning. He would tell his son, Mark, Mark, I have an idea. Why don't you, you know, Saturday is my church day, but why don't you go to early mass? First thing, six o'clock, and as soon as you get out, we'll go fishing. Okay, Dad. Little Mark grew up as an altar boy, going to Catholic schools, being taught by nuns. Nuns teaching him how to memorize scripture. This continued all the way through. Until Mark turned 17, he was working in a machine shop with his dad, and they were commuting back and forth to the machine shop. And it was an opportunity now for his dad to start sharing some spiritual truth. And he said one day something like this. He said, you know, Mark, you're coming of age. You're 17 now. You're about to go off to college. And years ago, before you were even born, I made a pledge to a priest that I would raise our children Catholic because we were divided at that point. But you're almost an adult. So I want to share some truth with you so you can make up your own mind. 
what you want to do. And so as they commuted, he was intentional, the father was, about sharing biblical truth with his son. Towards the end of, or, or about that same time, I guess, there was an evangelistic meeting coming up. And his father wanted to take Mark to that meeting, but Mark was not interested in that necessarily. He was more interested in going to the dance they would have every Saturday night. It was 10 miles away. So that meant he would hitchhike, something that was okay to do, I suppose, back in 1962. So he would hitchhike, or if he couldn't find a ride, he would walk or do a number of different things. Sometimes if it was raining, he'd be all wet, you know, and his hair would be disheveled. He said, Mark, his dad did, I tell you what, there's these meetings happening just right across the street from this dance. Why don't you come with me? The meeting starts around 7 o'clock. We'll take in the meeting, and then afterwards, about 9 o'clock, you can walk across the street. You know, you, you won't be all wet, and your hair won't be a mess, and you can go to the dance, and things don't really get started until about 9 o'clock or so anyway. It should work out just fine. Mark said, yeah, I like this idea. Okay, I'll go. And so he went. First night, heard the Adventist evangelist. Marion E. Kidder was the evangelist's name. Uh, and after that first night, just as according to plan, straight across the street to the dance. This was all right. Didn't have to conquer those 10 miles to get there. Second night, Mark went to the meetings, and on the second night, he presented Daniel chapter 2. Remember that? The head of gold, chest of silver, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Europe, the stone cut out without human hands, and Mark was just spellbound. He'd never heard anything like this before in his whole life. When it was all over, his dad could tell he was just heavy with conviction. And he said, Mark, what if we just Go home tonight instead of going to that dance. Yeah, Dad, I, I, I think that would be a good idea. And he kept coming night after night after night after night until he made his own decision and was eventually baptized. Now he's one of the co-authors of your Sabbath school lesson, among many other things. For decades, the Lord has used his humble servant to preach the three angels' message around the world. And I think of the wisdom of the father, who was not pushy, who was not forceful. Mark says, I never remember a time that my parents ever argued over religion. But he led Mark and eventually his wife and family over to the Lord. Looking for times of opportunity, praying for the Holy Spirit to lead. When is the right time? Not a bulldozer approach. You know, where you just back up and dump everything on top of them? No. And it changed his life forever. And where the last two verses, and when she found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. 
And then likewise I say to you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The smallest number. Just one. You know, when we get a thousand baptisms, we're going to have another party. Or, you know, come to the Lord and say a prayer, whatever it is, whatever that, the key moment. No, he says if there's just one, we're throwing a party. The celebration of all heaven. One last story. Jerry was raised in a Christian home. His mother was a teacher. His father sold Christian books for the Adventist church. But for some reason, Jerry didn't come to know Christ personally for himself. He spent a lot of time home alone watching TV. He also mentions that his mother didn't really have a very joyful, positive relationship with the Lord. And so Jerry wasn't attracted to God much at all. Time came, he didn't want to go to school, or didn't want to go to church, didn't want to go to school. He got kicked out of, as I understand, three of our boarding academies. That tells you something. He'd be caught stealing things. And he just said, I I wanted to get away from God. I didn't like rules. I didn't like restrictions. They kept me from what I wanted to do, and that was have fun. So that's what he did. He says, I wanted to be free. Isn't that the devil's lie? I mean, Psalm chapter 1 talks about the tree planted by streams of water that is fed and nourished. And how, you know, I I meditate on your law and all these wonderful things. That is really the true experience of freedom when God resides in our heart. But instead, the evil are like chaff. What does chaff do? It just blows wherever the wind wants to take it. And what does chaff like to say? You've never heard it, I'll tell you. It says, I'm free! Appears to be free, but it's going wherever the wind wants to take it. It's a lie of the devil. You want to be free, don't be tied down. And so he got involved in drugs and other dangerous things, and it was at that point that the parents knew that there was a significant problem with Jerry. They saw the gravity of the situation, and they did something crucial. They invited everyone they knew Everyone they could think of. And they said relentlessly, pray for our son Jerry. We're concerned for him gravely. And so Jerry had all kinds of people praying for him. People that didn't even really know him. Interceding on his behalf. That they would see God for who he really was. One of the verses the parents like to claim was our scripture reading today, Isaiah 42, verse 16. I will bring the blind, the context here is the spiritually blind, by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. They claim this over and over and over for Jerry. That God would lead him in paths unknown. But at this point, Jerry was full on into drugs. Living with some friends in Denver, Colorado. Get this, studying law, wanting to become a lawyer, and at the same time buying and selling drugs, including cocaine. I guess he wanted to represent himself, I don't know. 
Now, you've been in church enough times to know how this story's going to end, right? You know how it's going to end? There's going to be a happy ending. He's going to come back. The parents are praying. But I want you to stop right here at this moment and think and put yourself in the position of these parents right now. How long has it been? How many years has it been? How many attempts have they made? How many conversations have they tried and been hung up on? How many prayers have they prayed? How many people have they asked to pray? How much fruit have they seen? It's a big fat zero. How's your son? The question they learned to hate. How's your son? I don't know. It's been several months since I talked to him. I think he's still in school. But I think we still need to be praying for him. And they wait. And they wait. And they wait. Trying to go to sleep at night without thinking Where's our son right now? What's our daughter doing at this moment? Who's taking care of her or him? How is this going to end? But this is the second parable that we've read here. Where the good shepherd keeps seeking after the lost until. The woman continues to seek after that lost coin until. She finds it. And so we left Jerry living with some friends, buying and selling drugs and cocaine, spent a good deal of time partying and getting high, moved in with his girlfriend, and he thought all these things should make him really happy. But I think the prayers were working because Jerry wasn't happy. In fact, he just really, really wasn't happy. And his friends were saying, Jerry, what's the problem? Why aren't you happy? I mean, we're having another drug high and these trips are amazing and and what's the matter with you? Why aren't you happy? He says, I don't know. I just can't shake it. I'm not happy. I feel so unfulfilled. And there was a particular day that he and his girlfriend were shooting up together and a bunch of things just went wrong and they ended up there looking at each other in this living room saying, why are we so unhappy? And then they remembered. You know the verse, train up a child in the way they should go. And then when they are old, they will not depart from it. I remember them saying, you know, God is love. I don't feel like I know what love is. I remember in Sabbath school that God is compassionate. I don't think I know what that is. That the joy of the Lord is my strength. I don't think I know what that is. Have you ever tried it? No. How about you? No. Chuckle, we've tried it out everything else. Why don't we try Jesus? Still probably high on something. Sitting in the apartment with his girlfriend. 
And I imagine a praying parent on their knees interceding on behalf of Jerry until he comes home. What alternative is there for a parent to do? What alternative is there for our Heavenly Father to do? But pray and pray and pray. There was a call porter that came that tried to minister to this couple, was not interested, but he said, here's my card. Keep it. You'll need to call me someday. Rummage through. Looky there. Here's the card. It's three in the morning. He said we could call him any time. Let's give it a go. See what happens. He picks up. They set up Bible studies. He plugs them into a young adult small group. He plugs them into the church. And this is a loving church. They're still in the, the drug scene, you know, the hair, the rock scene, the whole, you get the picture. And they're coming to church that way, and the church just loves on them. Why? Because they're somebody's kids. And when they don't show up to something, the church calls them. They got their number. They took an interest. And they call, Jerry, we missed you. And your girlfriend at this, this function. Is everything okay? Can we do anything for you? They brought them food. And they start thinking, you know, everybody in our life that has been kind and nice to us are Christians. We've been fooling ourselves the whole time. Why don't we become Christian? And they were. He went into full-time ministry, went into administration. Now he's serving as the ministerial secretary at the General Conference. And we look at that and we say, yeah, sure. That's his story. Why can't it be our story? Is there any reason under heaven and earth that it can't be your story or my story? Is God not still on his throne? Does he not still save to the uttermost? If he can take this hopeless, and that's the mindset that we look at these people. Oh, they're hopeless. That kind can't change. They'll never come to the Lord. Yes, they can. And the same grace that was offered to us is offered to them. And God invites them home. God longs for his lost kids to be found. I like this. It says, but those who have been guilty of neglect are not to despair. The woman whose coin was lost searched until she found it. So in love, faith, and prayer, let parents work for their households until with joy they come to God saying, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me. Did you get it? You want to? <laughs> and so I ask you, what's the value of a soul? What's the value of your own kids? I mean, who can estimate what it's worth? I mean, go to Gethsemane and there watch Christ through those hours of anguish when he sweat, as it were, drops of blood. Look upon the Savior uplifted on the cross. Hear the despairing cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Look upon his wounded head and the pierced side, the marred feet. Remember that Christ risked all for your and my redemption. Heaven itself was imperiled. At the foot of the cross, remembering that for one sinner, Christ would have laid down his life. That you may estimate the value of a soul. And so for the parents in here that are still wondering how this is going to turn out, don't give up. You keep lighting the lamp. You keep praying for God's direction, for His guidance, for His Holy Spirit. You wait 17 years if you have to, longer than that if you need to. But when God says it's time, you follow the prompting of the Spirit. You don't give up. And by God's grace, you don't get discouraged. And you say, well, Pastor, I'm already discouraged. I'm way past discouraged. Let us encourage you in that. Let stories of others encourage you in that. It's not over until it's over. And so in the meantime, we keep searching for the lost until Jesus comes. Dear Heavenly Father, you have so graciously redeemed us not with perishable things, but with your own blood. Yet we have been thinking about a certain individual, maybe several. And in our small faith, we have prayed, Lord, this would be nothing short of a miracle. But Lord, every person in this room has been redeemed by nothing short of a miracle. So we're asking. We're pleading that you will work another miracle. That you will redeem your kids. May we not give up until they're found. By God's grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.